there has been great concern in China uh, that the United States is poised uh, to uh, recognize the Republic of China. I have my doubts that it's going to go that far. Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast out of Johns Hopkins University. Today in the podcast, we'll be discussing U.S. foreign policy toward Taiwan and the future of U.S.-Taiwan relations under President Joe Biden. What are the drivers of the relationship between the United States and Taiwan? How has this relationship evolved due to rising tensions between the United States and the People's Republic of China? And finally, how seriously should we take the threat of attack upon Taiwan by the PRC? To help us answer these questions, to end the podcast, we're joined by Bonnie Glazer. Bonnie Glazer is a senior advisor for Asia and the director of the China Power Project at CSIS, where she works on issues related to Asia-Pacific security with a focus on Chinese foreign and security policy. Prior to joining CSIS, she served as consultant of, for various U.S. government offices, including the Departments of Defense and State. All right, well, Ms. Glazer, thank you so much for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thanks for having me. So to get us started, we typically like to situate our listeners with some of the historical context. So could you run us briefly through the most critical points and historical developments in the U.S.-Taiwan relationship from 1949 to, say, 1992? Well, that's a big span of history. (laughs) Uh, The United States and the Republic of China were allied against Japan in World War II, and uh, when Chiang Kai-shek and his forces were defeated on the mainland in 1949, Uh, The KMT-led Republic of China government retreated to Taiwan, and historical archives um, show that the United States was prepared to allow Beijing to take over Taiwan. But that changed when the Korean War broke out, and the Truman administration um, resumed economic and military aid to the ROC on Taiwan and imposed the Seventh Fleet uh, in the Taiwan Strait to prevent a, uh, an invasion from what was then, of course, the People's Republic of China. And the U.S. took a position that the status of the island of Taiwan, whether it was part of sovereign territory of China, was yet to be uh, determined. And then in 1954, uh, the United States acceded to the entreaties from Chiang Kai-shek for a mutual defense uh, treaty. And formal U.S. relations with the ROC then remained intact until normalization uh, of U.S.-China relations, which took place in 1979. But of course, uh, the beginning of the improvement in U.S.-China relations really began under Richard Nixon. And then there was uh, the normalization agreement and uh, the U.S. terminated diplomatic ties with the Republic of China in early 1980. And um, uh, I guess the rest is history. (laughs) So could you explain to our listeners what the One China Principle is and then kind of why that's an important thing to discuss in a um, discussion about U.S.-Taiwan relations? Uh, Well, Beijing's One China Principle is distinct from the U.S. One China policy. So that has to be said first. Um, And the One China Principle uh, states that there's only one China and Taiwan is part of China. Um, So that is the main um, definition of the one China uh, principle. And uh, then 
the United States one China policy really developed over a period of time. It started with the Taiwan Relations Act, later, later on uh, came to include the uh, six assurances that was given to Taiwan during the uh, early uh, Reagan administration and uh, is very flexible and is uh, interpreted by different administrations um, differently. Right. And another question I have, Ms. Glazer, is, is the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979. Um, could you explain what that act is and kind of how that governs U.S.-Taiwan relations? Well, the 1979 uh, Taiwan Relations Act was passed by uh, Congress, and it was developed because there was concern about how we were going to continue to conduct relations with Taiwan after uh, normalizing relations with uh, the People's Republic of China. Uh, so the TRA essentially set out the framework for the conduct of unofficial uh, ties with Taiwan. And it created a nonprofit corporation, which came to be called the American Institute in Taiwan, uh, to manage uh, ties in the absence of formal diplomatic relations uh, with Taiwan. So the Taiwan Relations Act provides that Taiwan be treated under U.S. laws the same as foreign countries, even though we don't recognize it as a country. And it mandates that the U.S. make available to Taiwan um, weapons or what we call defense articles and services uh, to enable it to maintain sufficient self-defense uh, capabilities. And another important uh, provision of the TRA is that it stipulates that the United States um, will uh, consider any effort to determine the future of Taiwan by other than peaceful means as a threat to the peace and security of the Western Pacific area and of grave concern uh, to the United States. So some people think that the TRA has a provision that requires the United States to come to the defense of Taiwan, but that is not the case. Uh, it is not a mutual defense treaty as the 1954 treaty was. So digging further into the U.S.-Taiwan relationship, what factors have really driven the United States' informal relationship with Taiwan since the U.S. Di diplomatic recognition of the PRC under President Jimmy Carter? Well, the first factor uh, that comes to mind is Taiwan's transition to democracy. And that really began in 1986 um, and was completed about 10 years later and, of course, continues uh, to evolve uh, but Taiwan did have a, a general election and voted for the presidency in 1996. Um, the population of the island gained a voice in their future that it did not have when uh, uh, the KMT had gone to Taiwan and established power and, 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 and martial law was in effect uh, for many years. So democratization provided a values-based rationale for the bilateral relationship that hadn't existed before. And it really changed, I think, the context of the Taiwan issue, not only for the U.S., but also in some ways for China. Um, a second factor, I think, is the cross-strait relationship and uh, Taiwan's policy toward uh, the People's Republic of China. So the vicissitudes of the cross-strait relationship, which in includes variations not only in Taipei's policy toward China, but also Beijing's policy toward Taiwan, have had an impact on uh, U.S.-Taiwan relations. So the lowest point, I think, was reached when uh, Chen Shui-bian was president in Taiwan, and he sought to hold a referendum uh, that the PRC viewed to be pushing for independence. And at the time, the United States shared China's assessment that this was a provocative move. 
So uh, George W. Bush uh, had a meeting, saddled right alongside Chinese Prime Minister Wen Jiabao, and uh, criticized uh, Chen Shui-bian, not by name, uh, but uh, basically said that leader. Uh, we all knew what he was talking about at the time. And so Taiwan's own policy uh, toward China has had an impact on, uh, on U.S. Taiwan relations. And then China's policy, I think, toward Taiwan is also, as I said, uh, been, been a factor. So, it, for example, in the mid-1990s, when President Li Donghui visited the United States and he gave a speech at Cornell University, and the PLA started firing missiles at Taiwan, uh, first in 95 and again in 96. And uh, in that latter year, the U.S. sent two aircraft carriers to the area around Taiwan uh, in a show of support. Uh, more recently, of course, we see Chinese military pressure on Taiwan in the form of air incursions into its air defense identification zone and across the center line. Um, and, and that, in combination with China's overall military buildup, um, has really prompted the U.S. to take many actions to strengthen uh, relations with Taiwan. Um, and China's efforts to prevent Taiwan from participating in international organizations has also led the United States to try to find creative ways to help Taiwan share its expertise with the world. So this growing Chinese pressure on Taiwan has been an important factor that has uh, affected uh, U.S.-Taiwan relations. So what is the U United States' policy of strategic ambiguity? The policy of strategic ambiguity uh, refers to the United States not making clear whether um, or how it would come to Taiwan's defense in the event of an attack. Uh, so the United States just is ambiguous. If China attacks, maybe it will defend Taiwan, maybe it won't. And this is because we have this policy that's often referred to as dual deterrence. The United States wants to deter China from using force, but it also wants to dissuade Taiwan from taking unilateral steps toward de jure independence. And some people think that if the United States had a position of strategic clarity instead of ambiguity, that this might give Taiwan a blank check. The goal, of course, is to maintain the status quo uh, in the Taiwan Strait. And so for people who support strategic clarity, they think that deterrence is being eroded and strategic ambiguity could lead to war. Other people think that strategic clarity uh, could lead to war because uh, maybe it could provoke a Chinese attack on Taiwan. So this is a hotly debated issue today. So as we talk more about the United States' policy and the relationship between the U.S. and Taiwan, what would you say in 2020 are, is the key and the, are the most important aspects of this relationship? Oh, they are, there are many uh, important aspects of the U.S.-Taiwan uh, relationship. And in fact, uh, just this morning, I testified uh, in one of the uh, subcommittees of Congress uh, on a hearing that focused on Taiwan. And we talked a bit about this question of uh, the key aspects of U.S.-Taiwan relations. I would say uh, of, of great importance is the deepening defense and security uh, relationship. It's not just a question of selling arms to Taiwan, but it's really trying to help Taiwan to have more capability to defend itself. And there are many ways that the United States does that. 
There have been reports about uh, flag officers and general officers going to Taiwan. There have even been some leaks about U.S. joint exercises uh, with Taiwan. So this is a critically important uh, element of the U.S.-Taiwan relationship. And secondly um, is uh, our emphasis on shared values and democracy. Uh, the U.S. and Taiwan are partnering to advance our shared interests around the world. We're working together on infrastructure uh, programs. Uh, we are working to help Taiwan to retain its uh, its diplomatic allies, its partners, those that still recognize Taiwan. We're helping Taiwan to expand uh, its, its voice and participation in the international community. And then um, a, a component of the relationship that's increasingly getting attention is the expanding cooperation on supply chain protection. And this is especially relevant in the area of semiconductors. And some companies in Taiwan play a crucial role in uh, the semiconductor uh, supply chain. And so the United States is, uh, is now uh, talking with Taiwan uh, in an economic economic partnership prosperity dialogue about issues like uh, semiconductors and 5G and other areas of technology, as well as energy. Uh, so there, there's much uh, to cooperate on because there are uh, so many shared interests that we have. Ms. Glazer, the, we've talked about the history of the U.S.-Taiwan relationship and also the current status of U.S.-Taiwan relationship. I want to shift the conversation now to talk a little bit about Taiwan's relationship with the People's Republic of China, because this relationship has ebbed and flowed over time. And I want to know what is the People, People's Republic of China current stance towards the government of Taiwan and how has that shaped the current geopolitical tensions in the region? I think that's a very important question. Um, and, and, you know, when uh, President uh, Tsai Ing-wen was, was first elected in 2016, uh, the Chinese government did not respond positively to the, uh, the overtures that she made in her inaugural address, which included an acknowledgement, for example, that the 1992 meeting between KMT and Chinese Communist Party representatives was important. Uh, but it fell short of accepting this, the understanding that was reached at that 1992 meeting, which later came to be known as the 1992 consensus. And as a result, um, Beijing described her stance as an unfinished exam paper. And subsequently, uh, China concluded that Tsai Ing-wen was seeking independence and implementing what they termed decinification measures uh, in an attempt to weaken the bonds uh, between the two sides of the strait. China poached seven of Taiwan's diplomatic allies. Um, this has been in the last five years and uh, has consistently, uh, really uh, actively tried to block Taiwan from participating in any UN-affiliated organizations and even some that are not part of the UN. Another uh, point is that China's relied increasingly on sticks, on punitive measures rather than carrots in dealing with Taiwan. And uh, so this has, I think, led to instability in the Taiwan Strait. Um, of course, I mentioned earlier about the growing uh, what, what I call gray zone tactics, uh, using um, uh, forces and, and, and other military um, means and non-military means, uh, such as disinformation uh, in Taiwan. And, and that has created uh, instability. It has also really alienated the people of Taiwan, who in diminishing numbers uh, support reunification, either now or in the future. 
so uh, this has led to uh, people being quite concerned about the increased potential for the PLA to use uh, force um, in, in the near term uh, to solve the Taiwan problem once and for all. Uh, and this is quite worrisome. Ms. Glaser, there you mentioned a couple of ways that the PRC has exerted pressure, uh, exerted influence over the island over the last um, couple of decades. Now, we, all, we, we often hear of this threat of an attack on Taiwan by the PRC, and that's often referenced in the media as well. How seriously should U.S. foreign policymakers uh, take that threat? Well, we know that the PLA has been preparing to... Uh, for the possibility of using force against Taiwan. In 1996, when the United States had two aircraft carriers that were deployed in the vicinity, uh, there was very little that uh, the PLA could do. All it could do was fire missiles. Uh, but that led them to conclude that they really had to redouble their efforts, and they have done so. Uh, there's been a huge emphasis on uh, modernization of the military and building the capability to conduct joint operations. So the, the use of force is on the table, and Xi Jinping reiterated this threat in uh, the January 2nd, 2019 speech that he gave, which is the only speech he has given as leader uh, on policy toward Taiwan. Uh, but uh, we often see these threats referenced in the media. And I would say that based on my research, uh, these threats tend to be uh, those that are explicit in non-authoritative media outlets, such as the Global Times. Uh, we need to pay more attention to the authoritative media outlets, like the official CCP mouthpiece, the People's Daily, uh, which has not made the kind of threats that we have seen uh, in uh, in the Global Times. So yes, there is always, and always should be concerned about the potential for a PLA strike, but we really ought to pay more attention to these gray zone tactics. It, gray zone tactics stay beneath the threshold that might provoke a use of force. Um, and China is has developed a toolkit to use against Taiwan and also against other targets where it can put pressure on them and try to force them to change their policies, but not provoke a use of force uh, in retaliation. Yeah, Ms. Glazer, I've, I've, I've done some research on gray zone competition and, and gray zone tactics. And to me, it's just, it's fascinating because um, I, you know, I think it really represents the future of, of conflict. But moving forward, um, the Trump administration sought to strengthen ties with with Taiwan, in part due to rising U.S.-China rivalry. In what ways did the Trump administration actually strengthen those ties with Taiwan, and, and how big of a difference between relationships, or, or I guess, how big of a change was U.S. policy towards Taiwan in the Trump administration from previous recent administrations, such as Obama or the Bush administration? Well, in some ways, uh, the policy evolved. It would have anyway, regardless of uh, if Clinton uh, was elected, I think, because of the growing Chinese threat to Taiwan. Uh, but the Trump administration has been very forward-leaning uh, in its willingness to do things with Taiwan. Uh, so we'll give you some examples. Uh, in, in the defense realm, uh, arms sales have been uh, regularized and not put together in these big packages that were used during uh, prior administrations, both uh, Obama and Bush, for example. 
um, and uh, more than $18 billion in weapons have been sold under the Trump administration so far. And they were willing to sell F-16 fighter aircraft, new aircraft, uh, whereas the Obama administration was not. They've been sending more uh, DOD officials and general officers to Taiwan under the Trump administration than the Obama administration have been willing to, to do. Um, there's also been a willingness to explicitly include Taiwan in our strategy towards the region. So uh, the Defense Department published a report uh, on June 1st of 2019, and it was about our Indo-Pacific uh, strategy, the free and open uh, Indo-Pacific, and Taiwan was included as one of the United States' reliable, capable, and natural partners, along with Singapore, New Zealand, and Mongolia. And it was referred to as a country, which, by the way, was the first time, um, uh, to my uh, knowledge, that Taiwan has been referred to as a country in a U.S. Uh, official document. Um, in the area of uh, international space, you know, Taiwan's participation in the international community, the Obama administration had done a lot. They, they created this new uh, vehicle that was called the Global Cooperation Training Framework, and it's like a, a enables Taiwan to provide governance training to foreign experts uh, from governments and private sector and civil society. And the Trump administration further expanded this. They multilateralized it. They uh, Japan became an official part of this uh, GCTF uh, platform. And then uh, not only are uh, workshops being held between the U.S. and Taiwan, they're also being held in other places around the world. So it was also, one meeting was held uh, in, in Palau. Um, and, and then there's been um, increased coordination with Taiwan uh, on issues. Obviously, the uh, pandemic has provided an opportunity because Taiwan has been so effective at preventing the uh, spread of COVID-19. And the United States sent a cabinet secretary uh, to uh, Taiwan uh, and Alex Azar, the Health and Human Services Secretary, to you know, work with Taiwan on, on global health issues. And the Obama administration did send one cabinet secretary to, um, and that person was an EPA uh, administrator. Uh, so this was, again, you know, not completely unprecedented. And then um, finally, um, there's been these new talks that were just launched uh, uh, a couple of months ago on uh, they're called the Economic Prosperity Partnership. And, and the, this is supposedly a platform where we can work together on uh, things like, as I said, technology uh, issues and energy and 5G. Um, but uh, there haven't been any trade negotiations with Taiwan under the Trump administration at all. And frankly, the Obama administration did a better job. Um, and uh, hopefully Biden administration will pick that up and, uh, and resume. Uh, trade negotiations. But mostly, I would say there's been very active uh, effort by the Trump administration to strengthen ties with Taiwan. Right. And I, I, I think that's really fascinating. But my question, Ms. Glazer, is given this really active effort by, to, by the Trump administration to strengthen those ties, I mean, what has been the reaction of the PRC? Is it I know previously we discussed, um, you know, the PRC's efforts at, say, desinitization measures, but ha has that increased because of these um, increased actions by the Trump administration? 
Yes, the Chinese have uh, have certainly stepped up their uh, their reactions. And um, when the Chinese don't like something that Taiwan does or the U.S. does with Taiwan, they usually punish Taiwan. They rarely punish the United States. And uh, though at times they do, they've now said they're going to sanction U.S. companies that sell uh, arms to Taiwan. Uh, but what they're really doing is sending these uh, aircraft uh, and, and Navy ships around Taiwan in its uh, airspace in particular, um, and uh, taking other measures uh, to try and isolate uh, Taiwan in the international community. And I mentioned the stealing of diplomatic allies. Uh, So, you know, Beijing has essentially accused the United States of abandoning its one China policy. Um, And it has repeatedly warned the U.S. to stop sending uh, officials to Taiwan, to stop selling arms, etc., Uh, And I think there has been great concern in China uh, that the United States is poised uh, to uh, recognize the Republic of China. I have my doubts that it's going to go that far. And we only have about um, something like uh, 45 days or so left uh, in this administration. But uh, China's response has been quite strong. um, And uh, I think mostly against Taiwan, but also occasionally against the United States. And then, Ms. Glaser, just a quick follow-up. I'm, I'm interested, are there kind of policymakers or, you know, people with big audiences, I don't know what the right term, maybe intellectuals in the United States that, um, you know, are critical of, of the Trump administration's increasing of ties with Taiwan because they would say, I don't know, maybe they would say that it increases the likelihood of, of Chinese military action towards Taiwan. Is that... Is that a critique or is, or is it really a widespread um, understanding that the Trump administration's strengthening of ties of Taiwan have been a good thing for the United States? Well, um, of course, it depends on what the constituencies are. And in Congress, I would say there's been almost unanimous support for strengthening our relations with Taiwan. Um, in this sort of broader academic uh, intellectual community, I think it, it's mixed. Uh, there are people who think that we absolutely need to strengthen our relations with Taiwan and that if we don't do so, uh, we put Taiwan even at greater risk. And yet at, uh, at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who think that we have uh, violated our agreements uh, with China, that we are not adhering to a one China policy, that we are pursuing a uh, what's referred to as a two China's policy, uh, and that we have uh, gone way too far um, in uh, the things that we are doing with Taiwan and high-level visits and, and arms sales, uh, and that we are perhaps uh, putting Taiwan at risk and China could uh, could attack Taiwan. So this isn't, not only is it against our interests, but some people would argue it's against Taiwan's interests. So there's a, there's a broad spectrum of views about um, uh, U.S. approach uh, to Taiwan. But I would say that there's growing support overall and sympathy with Taiwan because it is being targeted by China constantly. Um, it's uh, cyber attacks, disinformation attacks, um, uh, narratives to try and uh, 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 reduce support for uh, for Taiwan's president to undermine its uh, democracy, and particularly with Taiwan's achievements in um, preventing the spread of COVID-19, countries around the world, not only um, Americans, 
uh, just recognize that Taiwan should be included in the World Health Organization. So um, there's there's been there's been more support, I think, over the last uh, year for Taiwan. Ms. Glazer, it seems that um, over the last four years, U.S. policy towards Taiwan has not necessarily shifted, but but definitely it, the, the country has become more important in the eyes of U.S. foreign policymakers and uh, changes have been made as a result. Now, that was the Trump administration, and now we want to try and forecast what the incoming Biden administration might do, because President Biden faces the enormous question of how to proceed with U.S. foreign policy towards both Taiwan and the People's Republic of China. On the on the question of U.S.-Taiwan relations, where will we likely see continuity and where do you think we'll likely see change from the Trump administration's policies? Well, in cooperation with Taiwan and issues like democracy and religious freedom issues, I think there will be continuity. The Biden administration is planning to hold a summit for democracy in its first year. And, and I think Taiwan is likely to be invited in some capacity. Uh, because of its achievements uh, as, a, as a democracy. Overall, uh, I think that there will be continued strong support in the areas of defense and, and, and security, but some of, some of the policies, I think, in the actions will be less visible. I think that the incoming Biden administration will think there's really no need to make public everything that's taking place. Uh, and you know, one example is that the Trump administration has made public every transit by a Navy ship, which has taken place about every month uh, through the Taiwan Strait. And they were conducted earlier by the Obama administration, but they just weren't made public. So I think we will see a sort of more low-key, under-the-radar approach in some of these, uh, these defense issues. The U.S. is required by law, as I said, to sell defensive weapons uh, to Taiwan. And I think that the Biden administration will do so. But it, there aren't likely to be significant sales in the first year, um, in part because Taiwan has just bought a lot of weaponry from the Trump administration. Uh, as I said, it's more than $18 billion. Uh, so uh, I, I think that will come in later in, uh, in Biden's uh, term, not, uh, not immediately. Um, and, you know, I expect that the Biden team will signal that PLA military intimidation of Taiwan will be met with uh, U.S. pushback. Uh, the growing risk of a Chinese attack on Taiwan really is going to require the U.S. to take steps to shore up deterrence. And so I think that there may be some signaling that uh, the PRC is going to have to back off some of these uh, really um, harassment and intimidation, these gray zone tactics, um, if they expect the United States uh, to uh, to do the to be more cooperative with with uh, China, and you know this is this is go, there's going to be tension in these issues uh, going forward uh, because I think um, there will be a lot of pressure from Congress to continue to support uh, uh, Taiwan. Finally, I mentioned about the. Uh, the Trump administration's explicit inclusion of Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific strategy. I think that's a question mark. Um, how will the Biden administration include um, Taiwan um, in its Indo-Pacific strategy, what it's now calling secure and prosperous instead of free and open Indo-Pacific? Um, I think that's a question mark. And whether or not uh, the Biden administration will pursue trade negotiations with the goal of 
uh, of signing an FTA, a free trade agreement with Taiwan, which is something Taipei wants desperately. That's also um, a question mark uh, because I don't think uh, trade agreements would probably won't be a top priority early on in the Biden administration. Maybe they will get there uh, eventually. Uh, but those are some areas of uh, continuity and maybe difference. And Ms. Glaser, do you think that we can garner some hints, some some information as to how President Biden might approach his relationship with Taiwan, given what he did, or if he did anything uh, regarding Taiwan relationships as vice president um, from 2008 to 2016? I personally don't know of any particular element of policy toward Taiwan that uh, Joe Biden was involved in when he was vice president. I'm sure um, that he was involved in discussions, policy deliberations, but his public involvement in policy toward China um, was far better known because he uh, went to China and met with Xi Jinping. Um, and uh, uh, that channel was considered important because the United States knew that Xi Jinping was going to be the next leader, the secretary general of the of, uh, general secretary, rather, of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, so uh, those conversations may, in fact, have included Taiwan. Uh, we don't know. Uh, but I would say that Biden has been very consistent in his support for uh, for democracy. Um, and in that context, um, I think that he would bear, he would feel that Taiwan is a is a place that needs to be uh, protected. So moving forward, have we ever seen or heard anything from Biden's top foreign policy team members that really offers us glimpses into how the Biden administration may handle this complex relationship? Well, I think there's two things that come to mind. Um, one is uh, the president-elect's own uh, uh, words, and that is a, 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 um, uh, an article uh, that was published in the World Journal, which is a Chinese-language newspaper that's published in New York. And this was during the campaign um, and it was all about uh, Taiwan and U.S. policy in the region. And he said that U.S. policy would include deepening our ties with Taiwan. And he described Taiwan in the article as a leading democracy, a major economy, um, and um, a, a quote here, a shining example of how an open society can effectively contain COVID-19. So Biden himself uh, penned that letter or it was under his, uh, his, his name. And so I think that's one uh, example. And then uh, we saw that after the, uh, uh, the election, uh, after uh, Biden was named uh, the, the victor, uh, there was a phone call between the individual who was subsequently named as uh, the nominee for uh, Secretary of State, uh, Tony Blinken. And he called uh, the representative uh, for Taiwan in Washington, D.C., uh, not 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 called an ambassador, but called a representative, but essentially performs a function of an ambassador. Um, and that phone call uh, was important. I think that was the enabled Taiwan to offer its congratulations to President-elect Biden. But it also signals uh, two things, I think. One is that the Biden team, uh, after it comes into office, will treat Taiwan with dignity and respect. They want to have a stable and close relationship with Taiwan. But it also signals that they might be a little bit more cautious than uh, than Trump, who made a phone call uh, to uh, President Tsai Ing-wen when he was the president-elect. Um, and that angered Beijing to such an extent 
uh, that the Chinese had uh, stepped back at the time and said, we're not having any interaction with this administration at all until uh, President-elect Trump uh, reaffirms uh, the one China policy, which subsequently uh, Donald Trump did. So the Biden team chose to handle that uh, differently. So you said that Biden's support of Taiwan may not be as blatant as Trump's, but if U.S.-Taiwan relations continue to warm under the Biden administration, how do you think Beijing will respond? And will the threat of attack upon Taiwan become more real? Um, I personally doubt that uh, Beijing is going to attack Taiwan soon because I think that Xi Jinping has an enormous amount on, its, on, on his plate domestically. Uh, because uh, China can be confident that it has, for the time being, prevented de jure Taiwan uh, independence. Um, and I don't think reunification is urgent uh, for Xi Jinping. Um, that said, there are concerns in China that time is not on their side. Uh, so we have to continue to be concerned about the threat uh, of, an, uh, of an attack. Um, I think that, you know, U.S.-Taiwan relations will certainly warm. Uh, China is not just, not just concerned about the trajectory as to whether they are warming. They're really, I think, concerned about very specific things, um, uh, whether China's red lines are crossed. Uh, so under, under Biden, uh, the, uh, the United States is really unlikely to deploy U.S. troops on Taiwan. Uh, but that's an example of a Chinese red line. Uh, or provide nuclear weapons to Taiwan, you know, really not going to be on the agenda. Uh, but those are the kinds of actions that would cross uh, Beijing's red lines. And, and, and China will, I think, be clear in signaling uh, what they uh, cannot tolerate. That doesn't mean that there are things they can tolerate. There's a whole lot of things that they will tolerate. And the Trump administration has demonstrated that by taking these very strong steps to strengthen relations uh, with, uh, with Taiwan. Um, uh, finally, you know, I would, I would say that, uh, in fact, uh, China really doesn't have, I, I think, um, complete confidence that it could conduct uh, such a complex joint operation that would be necessary to seize and hold Taiwan. So another variable is, you know, continued improvement in, in PLA uh, capabilities. So, you know, I think that the Chinese are going to warn the Biden administration very early uh, that they should make some corrective actions in U.S. policy. Uh, toward Taiwan. And my guess is that the Biden administration will say uh, that China will need to take its own measures to lower uh, tensions in the Taiwan Strait, that they must pull back on some of their operations that are taking uh, place around uh, Taiwan's airspace. And if the Chinese are willing uh, to make some gestures in that regard, that would perhaps open up some space um, for the Biden administration as well. Uh, but if if the Chinese refuse to uh, to do any of any useful uh, actions and put all the blame and the onus on the United States, then I think we're going to see a lot of tension uh, going forward. The Biden administration doesn't want to be seen as weak uh, by by China. This is something that happened during the Obama administration. Uh, Two thousand eight nine was the global financial crisis, and the Chinese concluded that the United States was in decline. And I believe started to take advantage uh, of the United States because they thought China is in this inexorable rise and the United States is going to decline. We continue to see these words in Chinese speeches and articles 
today. Um, and now they say that the pandemic is the factor that is accelerating U.S. decline and China's rise. So this is um, uh, something that I think that the Biden administration will be concerned about, uh, that China might take advantage of them if they see the United States as weak. And if if the Chinese try to test the United States on Taiwan, my expectation is that the Biden administration uh, will stand firm. Well, on that note, Ms. Glaser, we want to thank you so much for being here today on the podcast. I know I've learned a lot and I'm sure our audience will learn a lot too. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We'd like to thank the International Studies Department and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Subscribe on iTunes, give us a follow on Spotify, and leave a comment. We'll see you next time.